0: A podcast about security, human rights, conflict and law with an Australian and Southeast Asian focus. Hello. This is the first episode of the podcast. We have an interview with Jasmine Dawson, who is a director of the Kaleidoscope Australia Human Rights Foundation. And we spoke about refugees who are fleeing persecution for being either gay, lesbian, bisexual, transgender, or intersex, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region. We discussed what types of persecution they face, what are the problems they sometimes encounter when making asylum claims, and what is being done to address this. The interview goes for about 30 minutes, and it was recorded at Melbourne Uni during O-Week, so there will be some background noise. Enjoy! Hello Jasmine, thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you. Mm
0: -hmm. Alright, right, so you're a director of Kaleidoscope Australia. What is Kaleidoscope and what does it do?
1: So, Kaleidoscope Australia Human Rights Foundation is our full name. And we are an LGBTI human rights organization that focuses on advocating for human rights in the Asia Pacific. And the only domestic work we do is working with asylum seekers and refugees.
0: So just to clarify, LGBTI stands for?
1: So LGBTI stands for Lesbian, Bisexual, Gay, Transgender and Intersex. Otherwise you might hear terms like SOGI, which is Sexual Orientation, Gender Identity and Intersex. Um, We commonly use LGBTI in Australia, but obviously those are Western ideas around sexual and gender identity and intersex status. And in a lot of other countries people won't identify with those terms or will pick up those terms just to access their rights, particularly in the asylum system. Um, yep, yeah, thank you.
0: And has persecution for LGBTI status long been accepted as grounds for making a refugee claim or is that a recent development?
1: It's a fairly recent development and it's broken up into a few different elements. Um, So sexual orientation has been accepted as grounds for seeking asylum since the late 1980s in countries like the Netherlands and Germany, and then in Canada it was accepted in the mid-90s and the same in Australia, and then it's been accepted internationally now um, as grounds for seeking asylum. The same parallel has happened with gender identity, although it's a little more complicated and confused from country to country. And intersex status, while there have been claims um, that I've anecdotally heard about in the U.S., there's really not a lot of jurisprudence on that, or guidance, or knowledge about that. So that's a really under-researched area, but they definitely do happen.
0: Would you just be able to briefly explain what intersex means?
1: So, intersex uh, is quite a contested term and in different countries they approach the term quite differently but in Australia intersex um, refers to intersex variation which currently at the moment is about 40 different conditions or variations of sexual characteristics whether they're primary or secondary um, that fall into intersex variation so that might be Um, something to do with your hormones or your genetics, you might have an extra chromosome or missing a chromosome or you might have distended testes or you might have a uterus when outwardly you look cisgendered male or female Um, so it's actually, it's a very varied set of characteristics um, that aren't actually set and it kind of problematizes our notions of fixed binary understandings of sex when you look into it it's much more complicated than that.
0: So um, what sorts of persecution do LGBTI individuals face, particularly in the Asia-Pacific region?
1: Right, so again, um, it's hard to lump them all together because they, you know, obviously each of the categories um, experience different levels of persecution on different aspects. But often in the Asia-Pacific, it might be laws criminalizing same-sex relationships, like in Papua New Guinea, or most ex-colonial countries will have laws criminalising same-sex um, sexual activity between men, and that's been found to satisfy criteria for persecution in cases even where those laws aren't enacted. But again, that's you know controversial, and it's up to the tribunal member really whether that holds. Um, obviously, there's a lot of persecution for people who don't fit gendered norms. Um, So, you know, trans men and women around the world, and particularly in the the Asia-Pacific or, again, in, you know, ex-colonial regions, um, face a lot of violence and a lot of police brutality a lot of the time, or just lack of security or lack of access to healthcare or, um, yeah, protection from the police. Um, Intersex, often it's actually the parents of children who are persecuted for having children with intersex characteristics, or it might be that the child has forced genital mutilation surgery to normalise them when they're children, which can have long-lasting effects on their life and force them um, to have hormone replacement therapy, or they might have to have further surgeries later on in their life and a lot of complications. So it's kind of it's very varied across all of the categories, um, but it does happen. Yeah,
0: are there also cases of gay people being forced into therapy or into sort of insane, insane asylums?
1: Yeah, I mean that is a tricky one because obviously there's a lot of anecdotal evidence that that happens. And for example, if we look at China, technically that's not legal, and they've outlawed um, you know forced therapy, conversion therapy, and it's not, you know, homosexuality or same-sex attraction isn't listed as a mental illness, but, you know, media reports of, you know, forced conversion therapy is still happening. And that generally happens, I mean, in Southeast Asian countries like Thailand and Cambodia, um, it's less frequent. And Places like Japan and Taiwan and South Korea really seem there seems to be like a swell of queer rights going on But then obviously there's a lot. It's a very diverse region So the Pacific can be quite problematic despite its history um, of particularly gender diverse rights, so there's like a long history of places like in um, the Fafafina and Samoa Um, But still they're quite Homophobic attitudes.
0: Yeah. Thank you. And so, obviously, many LGBTI individuals try to escape persecution, but what problems do they face when making asylum claims?
1: Mm. Well, Australia is a great example of what not to do in processing asylum claims in general. Uh, then, when it comes to queer asylum seekers, again, we show many of the signs of what not to do. Um, limiting it just to Australian claims. Firstly, obviously, the clearest example of um, problems faced is that we send asylum seekers to places like Manus Island and Nauru. Uh, Both Papua New Guinea and Nauru criminalise same-sex sexual activity and we know that there are gay couples and gay men in both Nauru and Papua New Guinea. And recently, uh, in the news, there's been uh, reports about a gay couple who've been released into community on Manus Island and they obviously face a lot of problems both in detention uh, issues of like sexual assault. you know queer people in detention and in prison environments are far far more likely to face um, sexual assault, particularly in environments like that um, and also there those regional processing centers are, they have to abide by those local laws so technically if they were to exhibit any same-sex sexual practices they could be uh, handed over to the local police
0: yeah and what about <laughs> other western nations like canada and the uk and such
1: yeah well so i only just pause then just for a bit of a break because of the lawnmower uh-huh I gotta go back to it so um yeah, so then I guess the commonalities that we have with countries like the UK and Canada and the US would be in the way that we process asylum seekers through the law, so through our refugee status determinations. Um, some particular issues that Australia has struggled with was firstly the idea of discretion reasoning. So, up until about 2002, decision makers commonly would say, okay, well, your sexual orientation is something that you can be discreet about. It's a private right, it's not a public right. Therefore, we can send you back to where you've come from and you can hide it and therefore secure your own protection.
0: Sort of don't ask, don't tell situation.
1: Don't ask, don't tell, but not only is it kind of stereotyped and problematic in understanding of sexual orientation, identity, etc. It also was found to be beyond the purview of what the role of the tribunal member or the refugee convention is, That it was found that it's completely inappropriate for a decision maker to dictate how an asylum seeker should or will have to behave when they go back.
0: So, are you saying the tribunal sort of found in these cases, yes, you are persecuted for being gay, for example, but it's okay, just go back and pretend not to be gay?
1: Yes. And it's based on this faulty distinction which has kind of popped up in both Australia and the UK particularly. A distinction between being naturally uh, overt about your sexuality versus being naturally discreet and there's debates now and continuing about whether people should only be afforded asylum if they um, are discreet because of persecution versus whether someone would just ordinarily be discreet about their sexual orientation um, which is a very complicated matter but the main problems that we see in claims now in all the kind of common law countries like we spoke about, UK, US, Canada and Australia and New Zealand to a lesser extent, are issues of credibility. So how do you find someone to credibly be part of the minority group that they're seeking asylum based on? Um, Australia does this really poorly. We don't have any credibility guidelines that lay out how decision makers should protect the rights of claimants as they're making those claims. So uh, the EU and the UNHCR have both produced documents but the EU Human Rights Court has in 2014 um, found in a case there that decision makers were not allowed to ask sexually explicit questioning, they're not allowed to ask questions based on stereotype, they're not allowed to request or accept any photographic Evidence of sexual practices and they're not allowed to accept or require any medical testing and those four things if they were to occur while assessing a claim even before the courts that was found to violate an applicant's um, right to human dignity and right to privacy under the European Convention of Human Rights but the same would hold under the International Convention of Human Rights. Um, Australia currently does all of those things. So you can look at cases in the last couple of years that have had all of those four criteria um, that have been found to violate human rights.
0: So were these sort of things being done because the refugee authorities were sceptical that the individuals were in fact gay or lesbian or bisexual or transgender Mm -hmm. and such, Mm -hmm. and so essentially they were insisting the refugee applicant prove it.
1: Yeah, so one of the fundamental parts of an asylum claim is your credibility um, based on your identity or your membership of a social group is how they term it. And your credibility as decided by the decision maker is a factual assessment that can't be appealed. So the way that the tribunal system works is you can appeal your claim based on uh, if you think there's been an error in the law, but you cannot appeal a credibility assessment. Unless, in very rare circumstances, if it's just deemed to be so clearly biased, That it hasn't been, you know, the decision hasn't been conducted in good faith, then you might be able to appeal it, but generally speaking, you can't. Um, So, we've had, for example, an asylum seeker, he was asked whether he had sex with his partner the morning of the tribunal hearing, and then subsequently, he was asked, you know, what porn he watched. Then he was asked whether he used lubricant with his partner when they had sex, and when he refused to ask that question, he was deemed not to be a credible witness. Uh, that was eventually overturned, but on a very small point of law, not based on the line of questioning. The line of questioning was actually upheld. So at the moment, Australia, when compared to countries like the US and Canada and the UK, we're really behind. We, Our decision makers don't receive any training on LGBTI law or asylum claims. Um, and that's why Kaleidoscope, Published a best practice guide last year, and we're now developing training um, to give to refugee professionals, whether they be caseworkers, decision makers, is a bit of a dream, but lawyers representing clients, um, to at least make sure that they're processing their own clients' claims properly and that they can aid and attempt to have their clients' fundamental human rights not violated during the process of seeking asylum. Um, it's a very difficult area.
0: I imagine. Yeah. Um, in that Kaleidoscope Best Practice Guide, mm-hmm. there's the example of a gay refugee whose asylum claim was initially rejected by Canadian authorities because the reviewer refused to believe that he was gay because he didn't act effeminately enough. Mm-hmm. Um, like, how common is it for a refugee assessment claim to be based on a stereotype like that? Does it happen every now and then, or is it really widespread?
1: It's very, very widespread. It's very hard to have uh, facts and figures about this, particularly in Australia, where um, a lot of the decisions, they're not open um, to public scrutiny, so you'll only be able to see certain claims um, that the department thinks are legally relevant or that deal with a novel area of law in their appeal. Um, You can access those publicly. But generally speaking, we don't have access to... A lot of the decisions anecdotally it happens a lot and part of the research that I'm doing this year hopefully will um, you know, shed light to that a little bit but it's very common recently there was a lesbian asylum seeker who was told that it was unbelievable that she was persecuted persecuted for being a lesbian in her country of origin because she was too pretty so too pretty to be persecuted too pretty to be persecuted a lot of decision makers honestly have never been trained on what it is to be lgbti let alone what it is to be lgbti in a cultural setting that's foreign to their own so there's been a lot of research done that basically says that for someone to be credible to a decision maker it has to make sense in their own context so if you have you know a young boy who's from a rural town in iran who never once was out about his sexual orientation in his own home, who comes from a society that thinks about gendered norms and sexual norms very differently to here. He might be Muslim, he turns up in Australia seeking asylum, and the decision maker is expecting him to list off LGBTI organisations, to have gone out to bars and clubs, you know, to have... The idea is often that once they get to a place like Australia, they should be so excited and overwhelmed that they'll just be out and proud and attending things like Mardi Gras, right? Which is completely unrealistic. We're dealing with people who often have never been able to deal with their own sexual orientation. They might have internalised homophobia and more often than not, they've suffered sexual abuse, physical abuse. So the idea that they're going to be able to have a coherent conversation with someone in a position of authority in a different cultural context uh, is kind of ridiculous.
0: So how is it that these stereotypes persist? Like in the Kaleidoscope report, it's interesting that it was necessary to point out that authorities shouldn't try to assess whether someone's gay or not by asking them about Madonna and things Mm. like that. Now these are stereotypes that have become sort of unfashionable in wider society. Mm. How is it they persist within parts of the bureaucracy?
1: In the case of Australia, we know that decision-makers in Melbourne in 2008 had one two-hour training session on LGBTI. So they don't have a working knowledge of how to apply the concepts that are you know, outlined in training guides like ours, um, and particularly not in cross-cultural contexts. But there's also a lot of confusion about, because it's a new area and it's a new category, there's a lot of attempts to fit particular social group for either sexual orientation or gender identity to the same models that exist in other groups. So the Madonna case is a good example because, in the case that that was brought up in, the decision maker also, you know, expected, you know, the, that applicant to have read materials like Oscar Wilde, or know who Alexander the Great was, or you know, to have an understanding of ancient Greek homoerotic, you know, myths, because they expected that in the same way that they might expect someone who's claiming persecution based on their Catholicism that there would be this, you know, tome of information, like this bible of being gay. Like
0: being able to name saints if you're a Catholic.
1: Exactly. I mean, that's a complete misunderstanding of why, what sort of knowledge you might have as a Catholic if you're persecuted on those grounds anyway. It's really faulty reasoning to begin with, but there's these expectations that there are these social cues, these communities, types of media, ways of thinking, ways of looking, ways of acting, that are common universally for people who are queer, or at least people who are making claims based on same-sex attraction, um, which is really problematic, because they're Western stereotypes which don't e- that aren't even applicable to broader Western people being applied to people from a different cultural context so it's pretty problematic okay if you think about it there's a lot of claims right so yeah. we have a you know a hangover case later about 30,000 at the moment who are all on temporary protection visas uh, you know statistically speaking 10% of those are queer Regardless of whether that's the basis of their claim or not, um, but you have department officials making the first claim, and those people are not actually that highly trained to begin with on making those decisions, let alone on LGBTI, uh, you know, cultural sensitivity training.
0: So, lack of training is a key issue.
1: Yeah, I mean that's a primary issue and. We've seen that in places like the UK, and particularly in Canada, training has had a huge effect. Canada had training from its very first claims from about 1995. Uh, The Immigration Review Board there, it's called the IRB. As soon as they started getting these claims, they realized that they needed training, and they've had continuous ongoing training on LGBTI since the mid-90s. The UK has had big reviews over the last couple of years. They've developed guidelines and implemented training um, when some really questionable cases came to light there. For example, there was a one five hour interrogation of an asylum seeker who got asked, you know, what is it about a man's walk that attracts you to him and other further unsavory things. Um, But again, you still have, they've had a claim recently um, a Nigerian lesbian woman who was told that because she'd previously been married and have children, that there's no way that she could be gay now because, you know, just like your race, you can't one day be straight and one day be gay because obviously you can't one day be white and the next day be black. Which obviously very confused understandings of sexual orientation and the lived experiences, particularly of women who often have no choice but to get married and have children when they live in persecutory environments. Um, But, nevertheless, the UK is at least making advances, particularly on training and producing materials, neither of which are happening in Australia.
0: Um, Okay, so, can you tell us about some of the work Kaleidoscope is doing to help improve the refugee application process?
1: Yes can. Um, so the first thing that we did was work with pro bono um, lawyers at k Gates here in Melbourne and Sydney. Sorry, what is K&L Gates? A law firm. Yep. Yep. Um, and they helped us develop our guide looking through the kaleidoscope, which is a guide to best practice and determinations for LGBTI claims. And so that basically sets out all of the case law and all of the core issues that need to be addressed when assessing these claims and we've also set out a list of questions that are either appropriate or inappropriate when deciding these claims. Another part of what we're doing at the moment is advocating for well, lobbying I guess for policy changes. So we are approaching initially at the state-based level in Victoria the parties and saying that they're either queer, so LGBTI policy or asylum policy specifically and explicitly has to address the issues of LGBTI asylum seekers because they're a more vulnerable group within an already very vulnerable group. So we're particularly advocating for um, queer organisations and queer policy to encompass queer asylum seekers. Um, because at the moment in Australia, we're not really seeing that, and I think that the queer community can do a lot to advocate and support queer asylum seekers. The other thing we're doing is we are turning our guidelines into training that we will be delivering to refugee professionals. So that will either be lawyers or caseworkers. So we'll be able to provide those people, basically, anyone who comes into contact with it. asylum seeker be able to train them give them the 101 about queer identity experiences um, the best way to make someone feel safe enough to actually disclose that about themselves and then also guiding them on what's the relevant relevant case law what are appropriate lines of questioning um, what's the best way to support them through that process and hopefully um, have some kind of influence on the way that these are actually processed through the tribunal or the department and have a broader positive effect. Um, Particularly when it comes to reviewing sexually explicit evidence, we're hoping that if we can train caseworkers and lawyers to basically refuse to do that and push the argument that it violates the human rights and it also creates a, a false standard of credibility that doesn't apply to, for example, heterosexual couples. You'd never ask a heterosexual couple who are seeking asylum to show through photographic evidence that they've had sex to prove their A, identity as a heterosexual couple, or B, status as a couple. So in our mind, that's discriminatory. And in fact, in international jurisprudence on the matter, it has been found to be.
0: And what else does kaleidoscope do?
1: So, Kaleidoscope's main focus is on the Asia-Pacific and, at the moment, a lot of what our work that we do is very legally focused. Uh, That's the resources that we have at the moment. So, our main function is we will write shadow reports. So, when the UN is uh, reviewing a particular country in the Asia-Pacific, we'll team up with a law firm and write an assessment of the status of LGBTI rights in that country looking at whether there's legislation uh, that is discriminatory or persecutory, Um, also looking at the lived experience of LGBTI people in that country and providing recommendations. And those shadow reports hopefully inform then how countries uh, will review that country that's under review. And then final recommendations made by UN human rights bodies. Uh, The other thing that we do is we are writing a guide to ICESCA, which is the International Covenant on Economic, Social and Cultural Rights. And much like our refugee guide, that will be a guide on how best to use those human rights measures in that convention to further LGBTI rights. And we also are working on a transgender report for the Asia-Pacific, so basically, doing a review on the status of um, gender diverse people in the region, and what are some of the key issues, strategies for change, and ways in which uh, you know we can help achieve that. And our main focus with all of these um, projects is to engage with local activists. So we contact local activists, we ask them for their input, and then we work with them rather than um, just by distance telling everyone, you know, what's wrong. Uh, The other thing that we're doing at the moment is we're working with the US Embassy in Canberra to do training for Pacific activists. So we have our first set of training, which is with some Tongan advocates um, on LGBTI human rights. And we are assisting with another round of training for Pacific um, activists in general on LGBTI issues in the region.
0: Right, and how did you first get involved in this area yourself?
1: Hmm. Well, actually I was just sitting in a class in my undergrad and I heard a story about the medical testing of gay asylum seekers, which still happens in some places, but it did happen at least once in Australia. Uh, There's a practice called phallometric testing, where basically it's a test for both men and women to see whether they get physically aroused to same-sex but it's this debunked 1950s method of you know assessing someone's sexual attraction and it's been debunked in so many ways and clearly is abhorrent and a violation of so many rights that there's not really a point in going through it but i remember sitting in a class and listening to that and i don't remember anything else after that class because it just made me so mad that that could be done to someone who's fleeing persecution And then after that I started doing my own research in it, so I did an honours thesis on it, and now I'm doing my PhD in sexual orientation based claims uh, in Australia and the UK. And I was looking for an organisation like Kaleidoscope in Australia, and it didn't actually exist yet when I first started looking. So I was looking for an LGBTI organisation that wasn't focused on domestic rights. So I wasn't interested in campaigning for uh, marriage equality or um, most of those rights that we're going for now. Because in my mind, we're in a region where a lot of people are persecuted for being gay or queer. We are about three or four hours away from a country like Papua New Guinea, where it's illegal to be gay. And I just felt like that's where I wanted to put my efforts. And then whilst I was looking for them, I found Kaleidoscope. they just started up about over two years ago. I emailed them and said, hi, I'm free labor, what would you like me to do? And then over that time I've worked on lots of different projects and now um, I am a director for the organization and I chair our refugee working group and head up the training and um, policy lobbying for that. Um, And yeah, so I kind of just worked my way up through the organization and now I work there, yeah. (laughs)
0: And would you have any advice for other people wanting to get involved in this area?
1: In this area specifically, um, advocating for LGBTI asylum seekers, you mean? Yes. Well, definitely what I would do is encourage any queer organisations that you might be involved in to focus on uh, LGBTI asylum seekers. I would also encourage people to raise it uh, with their local member or within their political party. but also they can donate to Kaleidoscope. We're a non profit and we run on you know diesel fumes, so they can donate money through that way. Otherwise, you know, there's a lot of things that can be done, like if you have any interest in volunteering for organizations like the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre or the Red Cross or um, the Refugee and Immigration Legal Centre, all of those organizations really need manpower, but Training yourself up on issues of LGBTI asylum and then going into organisations like that and being the person who's knowledgeable and kind of agitating for change in those organisations is a really good way to make a start. But you can contact me, so if you head to KalioscopeAustralia.com or you email me at jasmine at and you want to work with us, either helping with the training or policy advice or Um, anything that we have going on, then you can do that too. We're always looking for volunteers.
0: Okay, Jasmine, thank you very much for coming on to the show.
1: Thanks for having me, and good luck with the podcast.
0: Thank you.